All right, now officially, good evening, and welcome to the uh, midweek Lent service at St. James, and we welcome everybody who's watching online as well. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different that we haven't done before. We're going to do the evening prayer liturgy, which is a, a very, very ancient uh, liturgy, and a lot of this is uh, taken from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, if that interests anybody, from 1662. Um, a lot of it is sung. We're not going to sing most of it. We're going to uh, just say it with each other and pray it with each other. But one part that we are going to do that's sung is right after the sermon, about four or five pages in, if you could look at that with me real quick, um, we're going to sing the Magnificat, which is just the words of Mary's prayer in Luke 2 when she meets with Elizabeth and they discuss having uh, both of them having babies. And we, the congregation, are going to sing the part that's got the music next to it, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. And then um, the musicians uh, are going to sing the part that where it says L for leader. They're going to sing that, and we're just going to listen to them. And then we'll come in on the refrain, and we'll sing that part. That's in, And it, it, it'll be easy to catch on to. But that's the only thing I, I have to point out to you, except for, uh, once again, just like last week, this always uh, weirds everybody out when we do it this way. I'm going to do the benediction, and then we're going to sing a hymn. And so when the hymn's over, you can leave. I'm going to leave during the hymn, and you can leave too. You don't need to sit here and wait for a dismissal or anything like that. All right, that's all I've got for you. Uh, let's jump into the service here. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. Let your light scatter the darkness and illumine your church. Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ, we have come to the setting of the sun, and we look to the evening light. We sing to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy of being praised with pure voices forever. O Son of God, O giver of life, the universe proclaims your glory. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who led your people Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Enlighten our darkness by the light of your Christ. May his word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For you are merciful, and you love your whole creation, and we, your creatures, glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's say Psalm 8 together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. One. 
For, uh, actually, let me, let's do the epistle reading first, and then I'll talk about it. Epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So like I said on Sunday, what I'd like to do over the midweek Lent services is talk about the seven deadly sins minus two of them, I guess. We only have uh, five weeks. And the, the, the first one you have to talk about is the big one, is uh, pride. In fact, in Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis's chapter on um, pride is actually called something like the big sin or the main sin or something like that. It's definitely a big one. And, and one of the other things I want to do uh, and I'll do this tonight, I'll try to do this tonight, uh, you know, God help me. Um, but when I, when I talk about the se- seven deadly sins, what I don't want to do is match them up with the seven cardinal virtues. I, because I, I don't think that they necessarily match up all the time. I don't think that the cure for lust, for instance, is to try to be 
chaste. And I don't, actually, I don't actually think that the cure for pride is to put on humility. I think that's a bad target. Humility is an easy one to think about because anybody who's tried to be humble knows that it's just absolutely impossible. I think that the antidote to each one of the seven deadly sins is the gospel. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about pride tonight and how the gospel fixes what pride screws up. And I have three things that, that I'd like first to talk about, and we're going to come back near the end Circle back to the epistle reading, so have your bulletin handy. First of all, pride distorts our self-image, but the gospel teaches us to value ourselves correctly. Second of all, pride distorts relationships, but the gospel repairs them. And then last of all, pride distorts salvation even, but the gospel teaches us to receive it. It does more than teach us to receive it. It actually gives it to us as well. But so the first one, pride distorts our self-image. Pride distorts the way we see ourselves, but the gospel teaches us to value ourselves correctly. I think this is, probably, this is probably pretty much apparent to all of us, especially when we see it in other people, that pride sometimes manifests in an overblown sense of self. I mean, that's what we think about when we think of pride, this increased, unrealistic sense of self-importance that all of us struggle with from time to time. There's a, a, a story about um, Winston Churchill arguing with uh, his driver about something, there was some, some, something happened in their day, and they, were, they ended up arguing about it. And uh, the driver, forgetting his place, of course, in the presence of the mighty Winston Churchill, sassed him a little bit. And Churchill said, well, that was rude. And the driver said, well, you were rude too. And Churchill paused for a few seconds and then said, but I'm a great man. You know, basically, I'm allowed to talk to you like that. You're my driver. And I'm Winston Churchill. And so we're all sort of, we're all, that's, when you think about pride, you typically think of people with this overblown sense of self-importance. But here's what's ironic, is that pride, frequent, while it does manifest itself frequently with an overblown sense of self-importance, pride frequently also can manifest itself as low self-esteem. The problem behind most low self-esteem, which but, but I'm not going to, you know, I guess maybe some of you are, are prepared for me to say, uh, you know, low self-esteem that doesn't exist or like just suck it up and get over it or uh, trust Jesus. Actually, low self-esteem is a big, big problem. And the, 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 the root foundational problem behind our low self-esteem is pride. We don't think of it like that, but that's actually the case. And it works like this. Pride isn't so much magnified self-worth as it is magnified self-importance. You get the distinction between those two things? Self-importance is I am the center. Now, sometimes that looks like, and I'm pretty great. Sometimes, though, it's I'm the center, and all I can think about is how bad I am. So if you have a magnified sense of self-importance, in other words, you're just focused on yourself all the time, and then you couple that with a failure to meet your own standards or the standards that you think can properly bolster your sense of self-importance, the inevitable result is low self-esteem. Flowing out of that pride of yours, which has not been matched up with your own lived-in experience. So I'll give you a quick example rule. I don't have any sort of like uh, concrete thing here. But if I'm proud, this is sort of a vague example. If I'm personally proud of my station in life, you know, if I've worked hard to become a respectable citizen or to, you know, to reach a certain sort of socioeconomic status, I, just, I eat at certain restaurants and I drive certain types of cars and I live in certain neighborhoods, if I've worked hard and I've, and I've developed this sense of importance around this idea of myself as upper middle class, lower upper class, whatever it is, once that's taken away, I will be crushed. I'll be embarrassed. 
I won't go back to the, I won't go back to the club anymore to answer questions about how I've fallen on hard times with all my prior peers who were also in the same socioeconomic category. Now, what's happened is, is I've not learned suddenly biblical humility. That's not what's happened. My pride has been struck and flares up as shame. That self-importance sometimes manifests as low self-esteem. And so we have to guard ourselves less thinking that pride is always like, well, I'm the best and I'm the greatest and nobody else is as good. Sometimes it's I'm the worst and everybody's better than me. But they both flow out of this inflated sense of self-importance. Both of these things are pride. A a good way to think of it is this way. This is a line from C.S. Lewis, a famous line. Humility is not thinking less of oneself. It's thinking of oneself less. It's not thinking yourself less important. It's just not thinking of yourself at all. Which is pride, this is why at the beginning, and most theologians, actually most philosophers, will say that pride is the mother sin because it's turned in on ourselves. It's making ourselves the center of the world. Out of this flow all other sins. And to stop thinking of yourself, whether it's poorly or too greatly, both of these things are pride. And to stop thinking of yourself and to think about others instead is something that's impossible for humans to do outside of the gospel. And the gospel teaches us to value ourselves correctly. If pride teaches us, if pride manifests itself in an overblown sense of self, then it's the gospel that teaches us to value ourselves correctly. Did you know this? Out of all the biblical virtues that Paul talks about, you know, love, joy, peace, uh, patience, uh, uh, humility, chastity, all of these are, you can find ancient Greco-Roman writers that teach all of these virtues. The only one that appears nowhere in Suetonius, in Cicero, nowhere in any, in any ancient writer is humility. And the reason why is, can you think about this first? Why would that be the case? Here's the, here's the reason why. In a world without the gospel, this is just kind of, kind of reflect what I just said. In a world without the gospel, there's only the haves and the have-nots. There's the strong and then there's the weak. There's the rich, and then there's the poor. There's the successful, and then there's the unsuccessful. And the only way that you and I actually are able to identify ourselves, to locate ourselves in a particular group that we can say, that's our group, is through pride. And so humility was never, humility humility was the trait of the slaves. Humility was the trait that the slaves should have. It would be a lie for those who are upper class, for those who are freeborn, to have humility, that would, be base, that would be base behavior, that would be slave behavior. And yet Paul comes in and Jesus comes in and says things like pride goeth before a fall. I know the Proverbs said that. Uh, you know, uh, humble yourselves underneath the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. This is very, very foreign. And the reason why Paul can do this is because Paul knows that our identity is not based upon our success, if you're successful, or your failure, if you're a failure but upon the fact that you've been joined to Jesus Christ and that makes you valuable. Christianity is the only religion in the world that pulls these two ways of being in the world, worthlessness and worth, weakness and strength, poverty and riches, immoral and moral, and puts them both together and says, you are both. You are weak. You do lack worth because you've rebelled against God. You are spiritually poor and probably financially poor too. But in Jesus Christ, you are wealthy. You are accepted. You are valuable. You are wise. You are strong. You are rich. 
It's the, only the gospel that can create a world where humility makes sense. So pride distorts our self-image, but it's the gospel that actually teaches us to, to evaluate ourselves correctly as both haves and have-nots with the emphasis in Jesus Christ on the have part. Second of all, pride distorts relationships, but the gospel repairs them. Have you ever thought about this? For pride to exist, for pride to be a thing, pride feeds off of this. It must value humility in others, but not in itself. This goes back to the way the ancients thought about humility as being a slave trait. You want your slaves to be humble, but you don't want to be humble because that's slave behavior. For pride to work, you have to value it in other people, but not in yourself. If I'm going to be proud of how smart I am, it is absolutely necessary that none of you be smarter than me. Does that make sense? Else there's no reason for me to be. If I'm going to be proud about how much money I have, it's going to be absolutely necessary for all of you to be poorer than me. In other words, I need you guys to be humble. I need you guys to be obsequious. And yes, Aaron, of course we want to hear your wise words. For, for my pride to work. What is this sort of level of, of double standard due to relationships? Well, you, you, you've seen this, and it's easier to see in other people's relationships and not our own. But whenever you insist that other people be below you so that you can be established, that just tears relationships apart. This is the way that arguments, family fracturing, this is how it magnifies and gets bigger and bigger and bigger to where it's not even about issues anymore. It's about the fight itself because most of our fights with each other are about pride. Who's going to win? Who's going to be the big man? Who's going to be the have and who's going to be the have not? Pride destroys relationships because it insists that everybody else be below it. It's the only way pride can work, else it's just ridiculous. But the gospel repairs our relationships by teaching us to put each other above ourselves. There's all kinds of good examples of this in the Bible where somebody has the ability, they have the, um, they have the, 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 the uh, right by birth or whatever, by gifting or by power or by political position to be prideful, but they give it up and they end up rescuing a lot of other people. Of course, Deuteronomy says, or maybe it was Numbers, I don't remember, says that Moses is the meekest man in the earth, on the earth. And one of the ways that this comes out is Moses' life. Moses is, unlike any other prophet before or since, God himself says, Moses sees me face to face. If anybody, if, anybody has, if anybody has reason to boast about their religious experience, Moses far exceeds all of us. He's actually been physically in the presence of the manifested God. And yet there are several times in the story of Moses and the Israelites where God gets fed up with the Israelites and comes to Moses and says, Moses, you're my guy. Forget these losers. I'm sick of them. Why don't we, you and I, I'll start a new people of God with you, Moses, it's the perfect opportunity. God himself is saying, I'm willing to make you the big man on campus. I'm willing to make you the, the, the new Abraham. I'm willing to make you the leader of a new people, just you and your family. And in each one of those cases, Moses says, no, be faithful to these people. He sacrifices an opportunity for significant self-advancement in order to benefit people who he, quite frankly, doesn't even like most of the time. Because that's what humility does. It refuses to say, I'm better and they're worse, and insist, by the power of the gospel, insist on bettering them at the sake of, for the sake of yourself. Another great example of this from the Old Testament is Jonathan, right? Saul's son. Jonathan's next in line to be the king of Israel. And in fact, there's going to be a lot of forces that want him to be the king of Israel. 
but Jonathan loves David. And that's, that's part one. Part two is Jonathan is convinced that David is the Messiah. Jonathan knows that David's been anointed. And so Jonathan sacrifices his own royal career advancement to bolster his friend's advancement, even when it would be easy to turn his back and let his dad kill David. All he would have to do is just keep his mouth shut to not, to not warn David. And he refuses to do that. Why? Because he gets the gospel. He gets the gospel. The other is more important. Than, and the only way to think that the other is more important than yourself is the gospel. It's not a human inborn characteristic. Now, so let me, quick, quick sidebar here. You will meet people sometimes who are like, oh, I just, you know, the Uriah Heap type, uh, for those who have ears to hear, uh, Dickens reference, who are like, oh, I just, I'm just a poor guy, I just try to help other people out. But, but when you start digging down below, it's actually their own pride. It's their sense of like, I'm important because I help other people out. That's, what, that's what's at stake. And if it doesn't end up paying out to help other people out, a lot of us are like that. I'm like that too, to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm willing to serve you guys as long as there's something back in it for me. You know, even if it's just you being like, oh, Aaron, what a nice guy. That's not humility. That's not gospel-centered living. That's pride, even if it looks like I'm helping you out. Of course, the apex of all these examples, and it's kind of even weak sauce to call it an example, is God himself who takes on human form and becomes a slave and is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, when he had all the royal prerogative in the whole world. He could have snapped his fingers and blown up the universe and started a new universe if he had wanted to. And yet he abandons all of that to come down here and sleep out in the weather and lose his friends and uh, be poor, uh, be chased by the empire, <laughs> to give up his life on the cross to better us. That's the heart of the gospel. It's not, it's, not, it's not like, okay, everybody start being humble and start treating other people better. That's actually not possible. But Jesus has done it. And in Jesus Christ, we can start to embody that, however imperfectly, we can start to live lives of gospel-centered humility too. And then last but not least, pride actually distorts salvation, but the gospel gives us salvation there's two types of pride that I've talked about so far. This is back in point one. There's optimistic pride. That's kind of a bad, I, I, don't, I didn't know what else to call it. The pride that's like, I'm the greatest. And then there's pessimistic pride, which is so self-absorbed and self-centered that you're just convinced that you're worthless. Both of these are wrong. I, I don't just mean morally wrong, pride is. But they're both inaccurate representations of who you are, uh, C.1. Optimistic pride, though, doesn't recognize sin. And so... It doesn't need grace. Cornelius Plantic in, in, in a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be says this, a main problem with pride is that it recognizes neither sin nor grace. In fact, pride hammers sin and grace flat and discards them. Here's what he means. What, what, what does he mean pride doesn't recognize sin or grace? Well, first the sin part. How does pride not recognize sin? Well, pride absolutizes the self. The self, like I said earlier, the self is the most important for good or for bad. The self is the most important. Pride absolutizes that. So my behavior can't possibly, if I am the ultimate good, my behavior can't possibly be judged as either right or wrong. It's just me being me. Just sometimes, you know, I, I, I gotta be true to myself. You know, I gotta do what's right for myself. I gotta follow my heart. This is what pride does. And if that's the case, if, if what I do can't be judged on the basis of right or wrong, 
then it can't be judged as immoral. It can't be judged as in error. Pride absolutizes the self, and what happens is there's no need for grace if there's no sin. If it's just me being me, I don't need grace to fix that. In fact, our culture, is, it's an epidemic in our culture that, uh, at least in recent Western history, there's never been a more self-absorbed culture than our Western culture, and yet we're still preaching at each other, you gotta be authentic. Well, everybody's being way too authentic. Everybody's being way true to their own hearts, and yet we keep on insisting the key to happiness is be true to yourself and follow your own heart when it's clearly leading us into a huge mess. As Plantica says, there's no need for grace if there's no sin. As Lewis says, as C.S. Lewis says, we hate, all the, we hate this type of person. We hate, the type, we hate the optimistic, prideful person, the person who's like, I just do what I do, man. You just gotta take me as I come. Like, I'm just me being me, and you either like me or you hate me, and you get what you get. We hate those type of people, but we are those type of people. Lewis says this, the more pride one has, this is from mere Christianity, the more pride one has, the more one, the, the more one dislikes pride in others. In fact, if you, wanna find, if you wanna find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? Or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. And this is one of the main problems with optimistic pride. We hate it in everybody else. We hate the obnoxiously proud person. And yet, if we're frankly honest with ourselves, frequently we are the obnoxiously proud person. On the other hand, pessimistic pride, which I alluded to earlier, magnifies our sin to the point where grace is impossible. If optimistic pride minimizes our sin to the point where grace is unnecessary, pessimistic pride magnifies our sin to the point where grace is impossible. I've talked to a lot of people who said things like this. I just, I'm too far gone. I'm just too far gone, man. You don't know what I've done. If you knew what, I, if you knew what I'd done, you know that like it's, just, it's a bridge too far and there's really no help. I mean, there's no way that God would fix up somebody as screwed up as me. Man, hats off, hats off to him if you could, but there's no way. That seems like a certain sort of humility. I'm really sinful, man. I'm just so sinful. God himself couldn't even forgive me. But think about how, go back to point one, think about how prideful that is. My sin is so big and powerful that the creator of the universe who died for me is not strong enough to save me. People trapped in their own pride under the guise of humility, as fake as it is. I'm so broken, there's no hope for me. This is at its heart, is prideful. But the gospel brings us salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 with me, if you will, 26 to 31. This is the reading we just did right before the, service, before the sermon. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That seems kind of rude of him to say that. All he's saying is, is like, we as human beings aren't that impressive. I mean, there's Winston Churchill's out there. But even then, do you want to be Winston Churchill's driver? It's nice if there's a war with Nazi Germany on, but do you want to be his friend or his spouse? No, probably not. It's pretty obnoxious. But God chose what is foolish in the world. He's talking about us. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, I think what he means is this. There used to not even be a Christian church in Corinth. There was no Christ there. There was no Holy Spirit there. And look what God has done. He's rescued a people for himself. There used to be no St. James 
Glenn Carbon. There used to be no Christ here, wherever, you know, whatever Glenn Carbon used to be called a thousand years ago. There's no Christ here. And, lo- and look at what God has done now. Is that because you and I are super smart or because the people who started Glenn Carbon were super smart or super powerful? God's saying, if you just look at this objectively, all of this only happens because I'm strong and I'm smart and I'm willing to save people. So no human being, verse 29, might boast in the presence of God. God wants us to boast in him. And ultimately, this is the antidote to pride. Stop thinking about yourself, period, and start worshiping God. To think about how beautiful he is. To be in God's word and to pray back to him how powerful he is, how loving he is. As Lewis says, to quit thinking of ourselves, stop trying to even think of ourselves as more humble, but just think of God because he's the one. He wants us to boast in him. He is the source. He's the one, verse 30. He's the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's God who does this salvation. And then, in case we didn't hear it the first time, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us boast in Jesus. Let us boast in the God who loves us. Let us boast in the Holy Spirit who gifts us and empowers us to love and serve each other. That's the antidote to pride, the gospel-centered antidote to pride. Let's sing the Magnificent. Oh, 
Please stand. Let's pray. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For Matt Harrison and Timothy Shar, for all pastors in Christ, for all servants of the church, and for all the people, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For President Biden, Governor Pritzker, Mayor Marcus, for all public servants, for the government and those who protect us, that they may be upheld and strengthened in every good deed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who work to bring peace, justice, health and protection in this and every place. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who bring offerings, those who do good works in this congregation, those who toil, those who sing, and all the people here present who await from you, Lord, great and abundant mercy. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For favorable weather, for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, and for peaceful times, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our deliverance from all affliction, wrath, danger, and need, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the faithful who have gone on before us and are with Christ, let us give thanks to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Rejoicing in the fellowship of all the saints, let us commend ourselves, one another, and our whole life to Christ our Lord. To you, O Lord. O God, from whom come all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to us, your servants, that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and also that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may live in peace and quietness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Almighty, merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless and preserve you. Amen. You may be seated.
to say.